For Wednesday, March 14th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk with Indivisible Foreign Policy Manager Elizabeth Beavers about the coming fight against the nominations of Mike Pompeo and Gina Haspel to Secretary of State and CIA Director, respectively. She also discusses Indivisible.org's Trump threat level and what it indicates. Yes, Trump is bad at his job. Yes, Trump is incompetent. Yes, we disagree with the Trump agenda, but it's more than that. It's that Trump is actively making us less safe. Then, following the special election in Pennsylvania's 18th district, we talk with Lynn Hughes of the indivisible group Mount Lebanon Rise Up about the view from the ground and also about how some are starting to turn against the Trump agenda. He pulls me aside and he goes, I'm a Republican. I have voted Republican in every single election. I'm voting for Conor Lamb. What the Republicans and Trump is doing is appalling and absurd, and I'm going to vote for Conor Lamb. All that, plus we'll have our dose of good news. On Tuesday, Rex Tillerson was fired from his post as Secretary of State, and to replace him, Trump has nominated current CIA Director Mike Pompeo. Deputy Director Gina Haspel will take over for Pompeo at the head of the CIA. None of these developments are particularly welcome news, and to discuss our response to it, we are now joined by Elizabeth Beavers. She is the Foreign Policy Manager at Indivisible in Washington, D.C. Elizabeth Beavers, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Um, So... You know, first, you've followed national security issues for many years, uh, including your work previously with Amnesty International. Uh, and and so even considering Tillerson's disparaging remarks about Trump and his disagreements, Tillerson allegedly called Trump a moron, uh, secretaries of state usually aren't fired and certainly not by a tweet. Uh, were you personally surprised by Tillerson's ouster? So it's it's really hard to be surprised or unsurprised by anything that Trump does these mm. days. Um, you know, the, the rumors have been circulating for quite a while that Tillerson's days were numbered in the State Department, both due to his own uh, lack of desire to be there for a very long time, his lack of um, uh, efficiency in doing his job and getting along with Trump due to a lot of things. So um, him being removed was not the surprise, but it did sort of seem to come out of nowhere. And, and of course, in, in perfect Trump fashion, the manner in which it happened was anything but normal. So I think it was pretty jarring to a lot of people. And exactly as you mentioned, not just the, the Tillerson firing, but the successive announcements of the Pompeo switchover and the Haspel nomination. It all was, it was a lot. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, and one of the ways that Indivisible responds to things like this is with something called, and this is on the website, called the Trump threat level. Um, explain what this is and then explain how you calculate something like that. Yeah, thanks for that. So um, so for folks who want to take a look, this is at trumpthreatlevel.indivisible.org. This is a sort of like a almost a, um, a solitary microsite that we put as an extension of the indivisible network. And the intention is to build the case that, yes, Trump is bad at his job. Yes, Trump is incompetent. Yes, we disagree with the Trump agenda. But it's more than that. It's that Trump is actively making us less safe through his national security and foreign policies. And, mm. um, you know, I think we've spent... Uh, the last few years getting really confusing messages, um, honestly, from from Democrats as well as Republicans about what good and bad foreign policy means. And I think there's a vacuum there to make the case for what a a real proactive vision looks like from a a progressive viewpoint. 
and pointing out exactly how it is that, that Trump is not just bad at his job, but making things worse and making us less safe. That's what we're trying to show. So on a weekly basis, we update this running list with all the things Trump has done this week that put us at more peril and put us at more risk. So, you know, I think it's probably a misnomer to, to say we calculate it. These mm. things are in a lot of ways um, impossible to quantify, sure. but um, there's a breadth of, of research and history and experience that show us uh, what leads to peace and justice and what leads to conflict. And um, there's actually a pretty good amount of consensus around that. And so um, that's where we came up with what we call the levels. They're really more like categories, I guess. I sure. Say. Yeah. Run, run those down for us, if you would. Sure. Yeah. So um, so there are uh, five of them and I'll talk through them. One is uninformed bluster. Uh, this is, you know, maybe at the low end of the spectrum where when Trump fires off tweets or he goes on sort of indecipherable rants, he hurls insults at global leaders, he um, speaks without even knowing what he's talking about. Uh, those things are really harmful with the things that the president of the United States says those things matter and they they sure. receive attention and they send signals both to allies and to enemies so so that's one thing um another thing is norm smashing uh this one look we just got done saying none of this is normal. none of this is normal yeah. yeah it's evergreen we could say that every day about 10 different things um trump is inhibiting international institutions he is violating norms um, now, look, being unorthodox in and of itself isn't a vice, but the problem is that when it is coupled with the hit, with the uninformed bluster and so many of the terrible policies, his going against international agreements, international norms, violating standards that are long agreed upon, um, going out of the way to sort of shake things up in a way that's insulting to allies and the partners, uh, those things are dangerous and those things have consequences. So the uh, next thing is rights busting. Trump has displayed an incredibly clear uh, trend towards authoritarianism. And his decisions that he makes about how the U.S. engages in the world have consequences here at home. We've already seen that in the post-war on terror era where um, attitudes about um, primarily about Muslims. I was going to say, yeah, the Muslim that, ban in particular. That, it, it, the Muslim ban is the perfect example uh, that came out of so many years of fear-mongering and demonization of the other and the idea that um, Muslim-majority countries are inherently scary and dangerous. It's a very, honestly, a very racist foreign policy and a way of looking at the world. And by doubling down on that, it impacts people who live here within the United States. Yeah. There's also, of course, a, a long tension, right? It didn't start with Trump between national security and civil liberties. And so that 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 tension and that feeling that cracking down on rights and cracking down on liberties in the name of being more safe, uh, that is a fallacy. And it's something that Trump has unfortunately displayed a lot of willingness to do. Um, just the last couple ones I'll run through really quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, dangerous warmongering. This is a big I think one. That speaks for itself. But yeah, ex oh, explain that. Yeah. Um, look, from tweeting at Kim Jong-un about his nuclear button, you know, um, talking about fire and fury and carpet bombing and uh, making all these statements about leading with a military posture in the world, um, I think it speaks for itself what that does for us. And there's a pretty solid Venn diagram between that and norm smashing, I think. Completely. Yeah. Completely. Absolutely. Um, and so the last thing is exploitative bullying. Um, we kind of get at this with the rights busting, but just to really hone in on it, um, Trump 
his first instinct in every moment of fear and every moment of chaos or conflict, if you look back, whenever there's breaking news that there's been some sort of act of terror that's happened globally, Trump immediately starts talking about the Muslim ban. He immediately starts talking about, um, you know, why aren't Muslims telling on each other and reporting each other to the police? And he just, even when that has nothing to do with what happened, sure. his first instinct is to demonize marginalized communities. Um, so all these things, each one by themselves is scary enough, but all together, it makes for a rising Trump threat level, which is why um, this microsite not only tracks all these things, but has resources for what we can do about it. Well, you said on Twitter yesterday that our threat level, our Trump threat level, is now exponentially higher with uh, Mike Pompeo potentially in as Secretary of State. So let's talk about Mike Pompeo. Yeah. Um, you reminded us that Tillerson was not a great Secretary of State to begin with, and I think that's pretty evident, but that Mike Pompeo will be far worse. So let's talk about some of the reasons why. First, I want to start with Pompeo's background. So before yeah. he was appointed to the head of the CIA, Pompeo was a congressman from Kansas. Mm -hmm. uh, what should we know slash remember about Pompeo's tenure in Congress? Yeah, so one thing we should really point to is his history of opposing diplomacy with Iran. This gets to the dangerous warmongering and norms busting kind of stuff we were talking about before. Um, you know, the historic, really the signature foreign policy achievement of the Obama administration, the Iran nuclear deal, Pompeo was a solid, solid opponent of that. Um, and and look, like this deal, it's, it's really, if, if we're just dealing with the facts of it, uh, it ensures that Iran's path to a nuclear weapon is cut off in a verifiable way with the most robust inspections regime in history. Um, and it's keeping us from a new hot war with Iran. It's it's a negotiator's dream, right? Like, it's, it's an amazing thing that happened. And so Pompeo having that history in Congress of working so hard against it and being such a vocal opponent, it's actually a really scary thing, as Trump has made incredibly clear he wants to rip up this deal and he wants to demolish it, which would take us closer to war with Iran. Let's be clear about that. Yeah. Um, and there was at least reporting that Tillerson was not in alignment with him on that. And there were some disagreements that happened between them over the fate of the Iran deal. So um, having Pompeo in that role, it does not bode well for diplomacy with Iran, and it puts us at risk of a new war. And he was also, I think I should point out, a member of the Tea Party, one of the seminal members of the Tea Party uh, back in the 2010 Republican uh, takeover of Congress, right? Yeah, exactly. He came in on a, a wave of energy of doing some norms busting of his own. And Trump has talked about um, how his direct quote on Pompeo is like, Mike and I have the same thought process. We really get each other. Which, I mean, that speaks for itself. It tells us everything we need to know. <laughs> and then having something look like the Trump agenda, right, is kind of nothing without a complicit Congress and cabinet willing to pull it off. Yeah. And so having someone who is supposed to be serving as the lead diplomat and supposed to be the kind of central voice of the United States in the international community who shares Trump's thought process and has this problematic history. Um, that that's really scary. Yeah, and a couple of other things sort of in line with that uh, that I dug up on Wikipedia. One was uh, during his 2010 campaign in a blog post, he called his Indian-American opponent a, quote, turban topper, yeah. and he also called President Obama a, quote, evil Muslim communist. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I think that speaks volumes about the man. Yeah. In Pompeo, we should say, and I, I shared on my Twitter, um, not to be a Twitter promoter, but that's just where all these things are. Sure. Um, 
Uh, I'm at underscore Elizabeth RB if people want to. I was sharing a bunch of resources yesterday and our good friend Dean Obadala, who has an awesome um, XM series radio show. Yes. Fantastic advocate for the Muslim American community. He pointed out Pompeo has received awards from bigoted hate groups who are anti-Muslim activists. Um, Pompeo, this you know the, the comment about the Indian American opponent and the comment about Obama. That's not those are aberrations that like oh he didn't realize what he was saying or something. That's part of a pattern for him of demonizing and and engaging in bigotry and the highest levels of policy. Yeah, it's it's all very chilling. And uh, you know before we move on to talking about his replacement, what should yeah. we know about Mike Pompeo's tenure as head of the CIA? Yeah, well, one of the really problematic things is that a lot of what happens in the CIA is secret. <laughs> so uh, we unfortunately don't know enough about what it has been like with him as the head of the CIA, but what we do know indicates that he has um, attempted to really politicize the institution further, um, that he has um, he has been a pretty direct Trump ally. He has indicated... Um, kind of mixed mixed indications about how seriously he'd take the threat of Russia to the democracy. Um, he definitely has expressed some really problematic views in a lot of ways. So um, from everything we can see, there's this expectation that um, taking over the State Department might have a similar effect of politicizing what's supposed to be sort of a career institution that carries out um, policy in, in accordance with the law and in accordance with norms. Um, you know, one of the difficulties, again, is that so many things that the CIA does is by its nature covert. Sure. Um, and so getting those things into the open um, is going to be really important for senators as they're vetting him through a confirmation hearing and requesting disclosures. Well, one of the things that we imagine will come up in those hearings is uh, the issue of North Korea. Yeah. And what I think is interesting about the dynamic here is that Tillerson was somebody who had wanted to open a diplomatic channel – yeah. And just as that diplomatic channel seems to be opening with Trump uh, sort of spontaneously accepting this deal to go and meet with Kim Jong-un, he yeah. uh, ousts Tillerson and brings in Pompeo. And Pompeo is somebody who is, uh, has vocally advocated for regime change yeah. in, uh, in North Korea. What, what do you expect to come up over that during the Senate hearings? Yeah, gosh, it's such a strange dynamic. I mean, Mike, Mike Pompeo is a hawk. There's no war hawk. There's no question about that. But, you know, I, I think it speaks to the lack of relationship. Tillerson, it was widely understood, did not really speak on behalf of the administration. He, he wasn't really vested with confidence and authority from Trump to really be out there opening diplomatic channels by any means. That being said, now a diplomatic channel has been opened, and that is something that is going to coincide with the transition from Tillerson to Pompeo. So there's a couple of different ways this could go. In one way, if Trump really has his mind made up that he wants to do this meeting, I don't know that there's a lot <laughs> that's going to happen you know, to change that one way or the other. So have, there's one possibility where having a secretary of state that he trusts and actually vests with some power can help get him prepared for that meeting at least and, and at least connected with the right experts. But then there's another track that could go where if you trust Mike Pompeo and Mike Pompeo tries to lead him back into a path towards war and not towards diplomatic engagement, then um, that could be really problematic. So, um, you know, look, one thing that happened with Tillerson at the head of the State Department, and it, it, there's no disputing this, is he gutted it. I mean, we have Yum. expert diplomats leaving in droves. It is absolutely 
the worst time really for um, a major diplomatic summit. Um, when we're missing North Korea experts, we're missing an ambassador to South Korea, we're missing the people who are necessary to pull it off. So um, look, I think we all hope and want that those experts will be in place. But um, do you anticipate that Mike Pompeo might possibly uh, solve some of those staffing issues? Is there any reason to think that he might? I don't know. I mean, I've definitely heard around the Hill a little bit. There's this reputation of Mike Pompeo being able to kind of get the house in order and being able to consolidate people within an institution. And that's something they say he did at the CIA. Hmm. I don't know. I think this is all really unpredictable. Um, I, it it makes, it concerns me to have Pompeo leading a diplomatic mission to, to say the least. least. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but it's one of those things where for the good of all of us, like we, we want that, summit to be successful if at all possible obviously um it's just that trump by uh tying his own hands behind his back and getting rid of his own experts has he has inhibited his own ability to be successful and which way mike pompey is going to take that who knows and the stakes are just enormously high at this point enormously high right because there's also the concern that trump could like people who know anything about diplomacy know that you don't have like one summit and the thing is over and you've got all this these concessions and agreements like it's a it's a long drawn out process that requires a full-throated strategy but there's a concern that trump could have this one summit and say like oh i, I tried we talked now you know and now back to a war out. footing now back yeah. to war um, yeah. and so yeah yeah and this again this is another thing that senators need to press on really hard in the confirmation hearing it's an opportunity under oath to get pompeo on the record about what he's going to do about that Exactly right. And that's something that I, I do want to discuss in a few minutes in terms of what indivisible members can be pressing, can and should be pressing their yep. elected officials uh, about over this. But I want to talk first about Pompeo's possible replacement at the CIA, yeah. uh, Gina Haspel. She is currently the deputy director of the CIA. And if she is approved, she will be the first female head. But she has done some things that will definitely come up in a Senate hearing, including uh, the torture of CIA detainees at a so-called black site in Thailand. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So um, it, it seems like it was a long time ago, and it really was in the kind of heyday of the Bush era war on terror approach. The CIA conducted a number of secret prisons throughout the world to secretly detain and torture. This was around 2002, right? Yeah, started 2002, but ran until about 2008, until mm. the last one was shut down, um, as far as we know. Again, so much is covert, but, sure. but what we know, we're still having evidence that comes to light. But she managed one of uh, the black sites in Thailand. She personally oversaw torture. She personally participated in waterboarding sessions. She personally oversaw things that went beyond waterboarding. There was um, sexual abuse. There were death threats. There were beatings. There were mock executions. Uh, there, are, there are reports about her taunting one of the detainees who, by the way, currently is still in military custody. All these You're years talking later. about Abu Zubeda. Abu Zubeda. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there, this is at least, you know, what reporting tells us that she was taunting him. And um, he's somebody who, I mean, he went unconscious during these torture sessions and um, he had uh, liquid bubbling in his mouth and she taunted him about drooling on himself and just almost seemed to take joy in watching someone suffer, um, which we should point out, Abu Zubaydah still has not ever been charged with criminal activity and in fact appears to actually not ever have been a, a high-ranking Al-Qaeda official and, and was sort of mistakenly chosen. And um, this was apparently uh, videotaped and Haspel also oversaw the destruction of this videotape evidence from what I understand. 
Right, that's exactly right. Um, and the reason we know about that is because the people at the highest levels of the U.S. government who made these things happen are still walking free among us today and writing books about their experience and talking mm -hmm. and defending what they did. Um, Jose Rodriguez talks about um, Haspel writing the cable that instructed using industrial size shredders to get rid of the evidence and to get rid of the videotapes. Wow. Um, she helped destroy the evidence. So it's it's so far beyond um, she was at a place where torture happened. She personally did it and helped it happen and hid the evidence. That should be disqualifying. Okay, so now that we've got everybody good and freaked out, <laughs> sorry, everybody, that's, that's fine. Let's but let's talk about what uh, Indivisible is advocating that members do here. Let's let's talk yep. about action. Totally, I love to talk about action. Mm -hmm. So, um, the great thing about our constitution and our democratic system of checks and balances is that this isn't something Trump can do by himself. He does have to get Senate confirmation for these nominees. Um, Pompeo is a difficult path forward. I will be very blunt with you about that. Pompeo already sailed through a confirmation hearing to become the CIA director right. uh, with the help of a number of Democrats as well. Um, they're pretty unlikely to shift their vote over, but it is a really, really good opportunity for them to get him on the record on North Korea, get him on the record on Iran, get him on the record about U.S. engagement in the world. It's the time to, to make him under oath talk about what he's going to do. Um, the big thing we should really take advantage of, though, is this Haspel nomination. This thing is potentially stoppable. Um, already a few uh, senators have come out and talked about wanting to oppose her nomination, vote against her, simply because of the crimes that she's been associated with and the evidence that she helped to destroy. Um, if Democrats are able to stick together... It is totally possible that um, already Rand Paul has come out and said he's going to oppose it. It's really possible that McCain is probably going to oppose um, that, that we could stop her. So um, the best thing that Indivisibles can do is ask their senator to vote no on the Haspel nomination. We're going to be coming out with some resources that will be up on that Trump threat level website Great. so people can have at their disposal call scripts, talking points things that Mike Pompeo needs to be pressed on, um, and, and especially how to ask a senator to vote no on the Haspel nomination. Okay, great. And I will make sure that all that information is up on the website at great. indivisiblepodcast.org and also on the SoundCloud page. Um, there's another vote that is coming up on, uh, and this one is on the U.S.'s military actions in Yemen. This yeah. is a joint resolution by Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Mike Lee, uh, Republican of Utah. So I, for all intents and purposes, even though Bernie Sanders is an independent, that makes it bipartisan. Um this is coming up for a vote on Thursday, March 15th, which is tomorrow. Um, I want to talk about what uh, Indivisible is recommending we do. But first, tell us what is happening right now in Yemen. Totally. And let me also say that uh, the great thing about this resolution is that Chris Murphy is also a lead sponsor of it. Democrat so of Connecticut. A Democrat, Republican, and Independent. So it really, truly is tripartisan then, I guess. <laughs> Transpartisan, we yeah. might even say. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. So the situation in Yemen is really horrific. I'm, I'm sorry. I know I come on your show and I just freak everyone out. And, and No, no, no. But we need to know this stuff. So And I am bringing what we can do about it, which is even better. So, yes. um, yeah. So... It's really useful to think about there's really two wars happening in Yemen. Um, the U.S. obviously for years and years now has been conducting military operations against al-Qaeda and associated forces, and some of that fight is happening in Yemen. This is not what this resolution is about. This resolution is about the second war that the U.S. is participating in in Yemen, 
and this is the civil war that's happening. Um, okay. There's been years of political strife in Yemen. Um, to kind of loosely describe it now, there's one side that is kind of sort of pro-government forces, although that's really too overly simplistic, and that's backed by uh, a Saudi-led right. coalition, and that's the side that the U.S. is supporting. And they're fighting against rebel forces led by a group called the Houthis, um, and in large part, Iran is supporting the Houthis. So the U.S. Is so it's kind, kind of, of a proxy yeah, war then. Totally, totally. Like so many other things in the Middle East, this is really about Saudi Arabia confronting Iran and the U.S. getting closer to that potential hot war with Iran. Um, so, so what's happening here is the U.S.'s participation uh, is in the form of, first of all, selling billions of dollars in weapons to the Saudis, but also um, providing mid-air refueling, providing targeting information, intelligence on the ground, um, helping the coalition carry out their airstrikes. Um, and this has really just terrible, terrible results. Um, Yemen is the site of the largest humanitarian crisis in the world right now because mm. of this war. Um, nearly 8 million people are on the brink of famine. It's the largest cholera outbreak in recorded history. Um, and part of that is because the Saudi-led coalition that the U.S. is supporting has also, um, as a tactic of war, closed off a number of naval ports and prevented food and medicine from getting through. And that has contributed to the crisis. So um, it's a terrible, terrible thing. And But even aside from the merits of it, Congress never authorized it. Um, as we all remember from like the ninth grade and civics class, right? Like the, sure. the Congress has the constitutional authority to authorize military force, not the president. Right. Well, so that leads us into the Sanders Lee resolution. So uh, tell us what is in that resolution. Yeah. So this sort of invokes a procedure under the War Powers Resolution, which if folks remember that was passed after Vietnam, it basically was a way of Congress to kind of claw back what it saw as um, rapidly expanding executive war powers that infringed on the constitutional war powers of the Congress. Um, and so the War Powers Resolution set up, sets up a procedure where um, if the president has basically deployed troops, has engaged in hostilities, and it defines hostilities very loosely, including coordinating forces, not just troops being on the ground, then the Congress is able to force the vote to express its disapproval, to basically say, we never authorized this and you cannot continue until you get authorization. So, you know, this resolution, if it were to pass... Yeah, and, and I understand it's not expected to pass, right? Exactly. And so and this thing needs a simple majority in the Senate, I should say. And, um, and so it's really interesting going to see what happens. But if it were to pass, and, and, and it would have to pass the House, and Trump would have to sign it, and that's, that's certainly not going to happen beyond even if it were to pass the Senate. Um, what it would do is it basically would, um, within a timetable, say you have to stop participating in the Yemen Civil War unless you come to Congress and get authorization, which is just the constitutional standard. It doesn't even take a position on whether we should be fighting in Yemen, whether we should be a part of the Civil War, uh, whether we should move forward, that's something, that's a debate that the Congress can certainly have and the administration can have if they want to get authorization. But it's just setting that baseline as saying we're not going to do it without congressional authorization. So what are we asking members to do around this? We are asking them to urge their senators to support, it's called SJ Res 54, or you can just call it the Sanders-Lee resolution. Okay. People will know what you mean. 
Um, and that is up on the Trump threat level website as well. Um, as you mentioned, we had heard that a vote might happen tomorrow because of um, a, a kind of a crowded Senate floor. There's a chance that it gets bumped back a week, not a week, sorry, uh, a few days, maybe into early next week. Um, and I will keep posting from my Twitter and the Indivisible account will be posting on their Twitter the latest that we hear. Um, but if that does happen, that's good news because that's more time to call an influence. The latest that I have heard um, is that uh, DOD, the Pentagon is lobbying very hard against this bill um, and that they are pushing really hard on both Republicans and Democrats to oppose it. Um, and they're going to the Hill and providing a classified briefing um, and that a lot of senators are weighing that when they decide what to do. Um, but I also have been hearing from congressional offices that they're getting a ton of phone calls in support. Are you anticipating any sort of a floor discussion over this? Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, so already there was yesterday the lead sponsors, Sanders, Lee, and Murphy went to the floor. Um, and I'm happy to share that video with any real That'd be great. Want, yeah, we can that. share that yeah, on the website. They, they were joined by uh, Dick Durbin, too. Um, and they spent a ton of time talking about this resolution and why they're doing it. It was really phenomenal. Um, so there has to be a vote on this one way or the other um, pursuant to the procedure laid out under the War Powers Resolution. Um, so it will hit the floor. There will be floor action. Each senator is going to have to decide. Um, and so we'll at least see that conversation, right? There's at least a mechanism for having that conversation, especially in the era of Trump. Sure. watching Congress try to take back its power. And I think it's good for us to alert our senators that we are watching this. Exactly, exactly. No, you hit the nail on the head. That, that's the, the biggest thing we can accomplish here is that senators understand, uh, A, we're watching. B, we expect you to do more in taking back your power. A lot of these senators, um, quite frankly, like to talk a really big game on cable news and in interviews about their concerns about Trump and um, all the anxiety they're feeling about him bombing North Korea or whatever, um, if they're not willing to exercise this mechanism that is at their disposal to rein Trump in and assert their authority, then why should we expect that they would in any other context? Right. So it's kind of a test case in a lot of ways for what Congress is willing to do. Well, you have an extraordinarily fascinating job uh, on Indivisible's end, and uh, obviously all of these things are going to be developing for some time to come. And so we would love to check back with you uh, yeah. in the future if we can. I would love that, and I love my job, and I'm only here and able to do this because there are so many Indivisibles out there who are doing what they're doing. So happy to talk anytime. Well, Elizabeth Beavers, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. The special election in Pennsylvania's 18th district is officially too close to call as we record this on Wednesday the 14th with Democrat Connor Lamb up by just over 500 votes over Republican Rick Saccone. But I wanted to check in with a voice on the ground. And so we talk now with Lynn Hughes. Lynn is the lead organizer with the indivisible group Mount Lebanon Rise Up, and she is operating on about two hours of sleep. So we thank her for joining us. Uh, Lynn, how are you? Uh, how are you holding up today? I'm good. Like I am, I'm on about my fourth cup of coffee okay. and two hours of sleep, but I, I'm good. <laughs> well, yeah. So, what's the mood like among people in your group? What are people saying this morning? We are elated. We're just absolutely thrilled with that. We had been uh, cautiously optimistic uh, going in. We had heard about the high voter turnout, which always bodes well for Democrats, and so we were cautiously optimistic going into the election, and we knew it was going to be close. We didn't know it was going to be 
as close as it was. Yeah. <laughs> as close as it was, but we knew it was going to be close. And we knew that regardless of it, the fact that it was close, when Democrats didn't even field the candidate for two election cycles, um, says a whole heck of a lot. So we're quite proud and um, just elated and ready to move on to the next step. Yeah, I think a lot of people are uh, saying at this point that, you know, just the fact that Connor Lamb came as close as he did and essentially erased uh, what was Trump's average of a 20 point victory in November of last year uh, says a heck of a lot about, I think, the Trump effect and also about the shifting demographics where you are. Um, Give us an idea of what you and your indivisible group uh, have been doing around the Connor Lamb campaign specifically. Yeah, so we started out right at the convention. There was a convention um, to choose after Murphy resigned, and seven candidates threw their name in to that hat. We didn't endorse anyone, but we did unendorse a candidate. Her name was Gina Sorelli, and we basically just said that we would be able to mobilize and get out the vote for any of any other candidate but that one. We got our um, members into committee spots, so they did have a vote. Um, Connor Lamb pulled ahead, and he won the nomination. So then we just told the campaign, we will do whatever you want us to do. What do you need? And then so it ended up being that our main focuses were we did canvassing, uh, staging locations throughout the 18th district, and then we also did phone banking that just came out of people's houses. Like it was just small neighborhood phone banking. Yeah. Um, basically everywhere in the 18th district. <laughs> did you meet the candidate personally? Yes. A couple times, yes. Uh, which, which, which is always a good way to, to get people's enthusiasm up to, to get out there and, and work yes. harder. Um, you know, pundits is, and speaking of, of Connor Lamb himself, uh, pundits are saying, a lot of them are saying that this is proof not only of Trump's unpopularity, uh, but also that a quality candidate matters. And uh, from everything that we saw, Connor Lamb ran a tremendous campaign and was a really solid candidate. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I absolutely um, agree with that. I will say the one thing that I am proud of and do take credit for um, are the quality candidates. We had seven people throw their name into the hat. Every single one of them was qualified except for one. Um, And that's because, and they've told us this, that's because they saw Mondays with Murphy, you know, outside. They knew that there was um, a grassroots effort that would be willing to be there, like foot foot soldiers, basically. and so that got even before Murphy resigned, we had already had three candidates. Oh, wow. So you and, um, and then you had an infrastructure in place so that by the time you had a candidate, yeah. you were really ready to hit the ground running. Yeah, we were already ready to go. It just came a little bit earlier. We were preparing for midterms, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it came a little bit earlier. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Tim Murphy's resignation, uh, the circumstances were ugly, but it was probably a pleasant surprise to people on your end. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a bit crazy, those 48 hours when he resigned and then what followed. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I should mention that Tim Murphy resigned last October after it was revealed that he had asked a woman he had an affair with to terminate her pregnancy and uh, Murphy was vehemently anti-choice. So I want to ask you about a little bit more about Connor Lamb um, because he is a political moderate by most standards. He is vocally pro-gun. He's personally against abortion, although he supports a woman's right to choose. And I'm wondering, were those stances troubling to anybody within your group? Were there any discussions around that? So I am. I was actually a registered independent until 2016. I happened to be an independent in charge of a group of mostly progressive 
members, which is kind of a little bit odd. So I, yeah. um, there are, and you know, it was kind of frustrating. This is what I will say. I know that Connor came out against um, the 20-week abortion ban, or I know that he would not vote for that. So that made me happy. The gun, I will admit, the gun thing made me a little bit unhappy, but then Connor met with Moms Demand Action, and one of my friends who is an organizer from Moms Demand Action said, actually, we're quite pleased with Connor. We feel like his positions line very similarly to ours. And so that kind of, and I trust mothers who have lost kids to gun violence to lead the way to that. So if they're okay with Connor, then I am also (laughs) okay with Connor. So, yeah, and then one of the things about Connor is, he is a moderate, but he is willing to meet with just about any organization. And when he says that he wants to listen and get things done, he really, truly means it. And he's not going to say one thing behind closed doors and say another to another group of people. So that's what I appreciate about him as well. You know, you mentioned that you are an independent and or a, a, well now now I'm a registered Democrat, but okay. I was a registered independent. <laughs> the reason why I, I bring that up is because I, I'm wondering how typical you are as a voter within your district there you know in order for there to be a 20 point uh, shift one way or another you would imagine that people who consider themselves you know politically moderate independents moderate democrats moderate republicans uh would hold sway in a district like that so i'm wondering how typical are you as a voter in that district I'm pretty typical. Okay. I am I am pretty typical. I mean, our family members, I've got family members that voted for Trump. My dad's a Republican. My mom's a Democrat. Like, it's a very typical mm. thing. And you'll find in Western Pennsylvania, we're in union country. It matters more um, the type of person that you are from, um, whether you hold yourself with class and character and dignity. And so what your political leanings are, I, it doesn't really matter to people because, you know, we our neighbors are Republican or Democrat. It's a very, very blue, um, really. I mean, I know because really, because really there are more registered Democrats than Republican in the 18th district. They have just been in the, in the past decade, they've just been voting Republican. Well, that's very interesting because from all yeah. the news reports that I've heard, the Democrats haven't even fielded a candidate in the 18th exactly. in the last election cycle. Yeah. Why do you suppose that is if there are more registered Democrats? Um, it's a combination of factors. I think the biggest thing was Tim Murphy just had a hold on our district. He came off, he wasn't. We were kind of excited to run on his record because he painted himself as a moderate voice, like a moderate bipartisan voice. But when you match that up with his record, um, you know, that wasn't the case at all. But he did manage to, um, you know, he voted for the unions um, a, a lot so that, you know, he was able to get their votes as well. And um, so that's how Tim Murphy was able to, you know, have that fine line of pulling over a lot of Democrats in the 18th. District. It also helps. He sat on the committee that gerrymandered our district and then ran for the seat. Oh. <laughs> so he had a hand in personally making sure that yeah. he could maintain the district. I, I want to talk about uh, Trump and specifically Trump's visit there because he did pay a visit to the district uh, shortly yeah. before the election. And I'm wondering from what you have heard on the ground, uh, did Trump's visit, it was a very typical bombastic Trump performance. Um, did that help or hurt in your opinion? And, well, and by that, I mean I Rick Saccone. 
Yeah, I think um, the Lamb campaign has countered in an interview that basically said, we think that Trump drew out some votes um, for Saccone. But I will say this. I was in a deli in Upper St. Clair, which is a Republican stronghold, which we flipped um, last night. It's now a Democrat um, district. But this old man, and he's making my sandwich behind the counter, and he sees my We Want Connor Lamb button, and he pulls me aside, and he goes, I'm a Republican. I have voted in Republican in every single election. I'm voting for Connor Lamb. What the Republicans and Trump is doing is appalling and absurd, and I'm going to vote for Connor Lamb. So, I mean, I, it, it might have some effect. Trump is still very popular um, in this district, though, especially in the rural, um, in, you know, in the farming areas in Washington and Westmoreland County. So I want to kind of finish up by asking about your district because uh, it's not going to exist in a few months. No. And, <laughs> and, and so because the, uh, the, st- the state Supreme Court had ruled that the Republicans had gerrymandered uh, much of Pennsylvania unfairly in favor of the Republicans. So what's going to be happening to the 18th district where you live? Well, you know what? I have just been so singularly focused on Tuesday. Um, I know where I am going to be. I am going to be in the new 17th district. That is, but what's going to be interesting is some of our members of our indivisible group will be in the new 12th or in the new 18th district. And so the good thing is we already have been building that coalition of groups. And so we know already who we need to, which groups we need to reach out to for the new 17th because it's going to be a different coalition. So you're all going to be united uh, one way or the other. All the indivisible groups are still going to be united and working together. Yes, absolutely. That's the only way you win. And if I'm going to be, you ask about Trump, and if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, um, you can't run just against Trump. Um, I don't think that's going to work if you want to win over places like southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, So you can't just run because people hate Trump, and especially because people on the ground, we have friends and relatives that voted for him, and we don't are just, you know, running against them. We have to find common ground, and Connor ran on common ground issues and local issues that were protecting Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and disability and things that mattered to people in that district. And I think that has to be a very important message Um, For midterms, if you are in a district like southwestern Pennsylvania, running against Trump is not going to work for you. You have to run for something, not necessarily against something. All right. Well, Lynn Hughes, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, I hope you get some rest soon. And uh, we're all certainly uh, we've got our fingers crossed for a a Connor Lamb victory. So thank you for all of your work. Hey. Yeah, you know what? I want to say um, the Indivisible Guide was instrumental in helping us um, get our feet up off the ground. So we thank you for the work that you are doing as well. Thank you, Lynn. And we will end this week on a dose of good news. Haven't had one of those in a while, right? You know, I thought it'd be nice to devote this entire segment to what the new Democratic majority in the Washington legislature, thank you, Monka Dingra, managed to get accomplished in this year's 60-day session. And yes, I will certainly acknowledge that there were a few very consequential things that failed to happen, like further common-sense gun safety restrictions or the death penalty. But because this is the dose of good news, we will focus on the good stuff. So 
So, first, since you are listening to this via the interwebs, the legislature voted to make Washington the first state in the nation to pass a state-level net neutrality policy. We also now have a statewide ban on conversion therapy. We have a student loan bill of rights, which will protect college students from predatory lenders. We got the Dream Act 2.0, which will expand access to higher education for DACA recipients. And thanks in part to Senator Lisa Wellman, we got breakfast after the bell, so kids do not have to go to school hungry. And the legislature also passed a budget that will fully fund our schools under the McCleary decision. And we dramatically expanded voter rights and access. There's now same-day voter registration, automatic voter registration, voter pre-registration for voters who will soon turn 18. And the legislature finally passed the Washington Voting Rights Act of 2017. As I say, we did not get everything that was probably needed on gun control, but we did get a bump stock ban, and domestic violence harassment is now part of a list of conditions that prevent someone from buying a gun. Now, there is, of course, a lot more that can get done on gun safety, as well as a host of other issues next year. And to make sure that happens, we are going to have to work this year to make sure Democrats keep both chambers. There are a lot of races happening around the state, and we will be talking to a number of those Democratic candidates running for both House and Senate here on the show. And we will do everything we can to get behind them and even, hey, extend the Democrats' majorities in both chambers. That sounds good. Oh, and hey, since this is the dose of good news, I will report that since I spoke with Lynn Hughes a few hours ago, Democrat Connor Lamb has officially won in Pennsylvania. And that, my friends, is how you end this week's dose of good news. And that is also how you end this week's show. All the links that I talked about today can be found on the SoundCloud page as well as at indivisiblepodcast.org. Do head over there if you haven't already. And uh, while you're there, why not subscribe so you can get the show delivered to your email inbox. And speaking of email, the address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to my guests, Elizabeth Beavers and Lynn Hughes. My special thanks to Emily Phelps and also special thanks to my incredible, amazing wife, Lori Caldwell. Thank you. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.